I don't know about you, but whenever I think of people being raised from the dead, I always think of the movie The Princess Bride, where Miracle Max says that there are two kinds of dead, mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead means slightly alive. All dead means nothing to do but go through his pockets looking for loose change. Now let's step back from Lazarus' resurrection for a moment. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have the story of Jesus raising the daughter of a synagogue official from the dead, or at least if she wasn't dead, she was something very close to death. We're told that Jairus, her father, approached Jesus and begged him to come to his house because the girl, who was only about 12 years old, was dying. Yet before Jesus gets there, some people come from the house and tell the father, your daughter is dead, do not bother the teacher any longer. But Jesus comes anyway, and when he arrives, he says the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Scripture scholars are divided on whether Jesus used his Billy Crystal voice to say that. (laughs) Not dead, but sleeping. But seriously, scripture scholars are divided on whether Jesus was speaking literally or figuratively. Thus, it's unclear whether we are meant to understand the girl as being dead or simply on the doorstep of death. In any event, she's raised from the dead or revived from a state very close to death. Next, we have the miracle, this one only recounted in Luke's gospel, of Jesus raising the adult son of a widow in the city of Nain. In this instance, no one came out to entreat Jesus to perform this miracle. Rather, Jesus saw the funeral procession passing out of the gate of the city on the way to the burial site, and he had pity for the widow. This was her only son, and thus her only means of support, as she no longer had a husband. The widow's son was more clearly dead than Jairus' daughter. But again, he would have probably only have died that day, as it was typical to place the body in the tomb on the same day that they had died, owing to the fact that the law dictated that dead bodies were ritually unclean. Yet the Jews did not consider death a certainty until after three days. It was a rabbinical custom to keep watch at the tomb for three days in case the body showed signs of life. So we could say that the widow's son was farther along the path of death than the synagogue official's daughter, but still in that kind of mostly dead category. Now, finally, we get to the story of Lazarus in John's Gospel. Here is someone who is clearly all dead, because by the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Martha warned Jesus, there will be a stench if the tomb is opened. That's important because in the Jewish understanding, that stench which appeared after about three days, signaled the clear departure of the soul from the body. There was no longer any hope. As St. Augustine long ago observed, we see in each of these dead persons an image of a different kind of spiritual death that comes about because of varying severities of sin. Now, in saying that, I don't mean to suggest that we know what sins Lazarus or the synagogue daughter's official or the widow's son might have committed whether one was more sinful than the other, or to what extent, if at all, their physical death and or illness was God's punishment for any such sin. 
Rather, the point is simply to focus on the portrayal of the circumstances surrounding their resurrection as a way of gaining insight into different kinds of spiritual death and how the grace of Christ will overcome them. We recall the words of St. Paul, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in the case of the synagogue official's daughter, assuming she was dead at all, she had only sunk very lightly into death. Her youth and the fact that she still lived in her father's house are suggestive of a soul only guilty of less serious sins. For example, sinful thoughts or attitudes that weren't manifested yet in overt actions. They're not trivial, for no sin is, but they're probably on the venial end of things. This is why she can be restored to life so readily and, as Jesus commands, be given something to eat immediately. The widow's son, on the other hand, is out of his house and being carried to his grave. Being older, he represents sin that has progressed from mere evil thoughts or attitudes towards actual actions. Such sins have tangible consequences in the world, destroying peace and harmony between peoples. Symbolized by the fact that this young man's, this young man's death leaves his mother helpless. Yet in both cases, Jesus can restore them to life with the cry, arise. By contrast, the condition of Lazarus's body is an image of a soul truly lost in sin, buried in the tomb, cut off from the life of grace. The wafting stench represents the dark cloud that hangs over a person who is mired in mortal sin. This is why Jesus has to say to him, Lazarus, come out. The soul deeply immersed in serious sin needs to make a forceful break with present circumstances. But the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he can overcome even this kind of spiritual death because he loves us as he loved Lazarus. He can and will forgive even the most serious and the most awful of sins. He wants us to be in heaven. All it takes is a repentant heart. But notice one detail. After Lazarus is raised, it says, the dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. The risen Lazarus struggled to walk in his burial cloths, pointing to the, an underlying reality of sin that we often overlook. A person can be given, forgiven of their, of their sins, as I said, no matter how evil they were. Yet the long pastoral experience of the church over the centuries suggests that overcoming serious persistent sins in one's life does not end with receiving absolution and doing one's penance. Many people, in fact, continue to struggle with many of the same sins again and again, even after making a sincere confession. This suggests that the reform of our life begins but does not end with sacramental confession. Yes, our Lord has said, behold, I make all things new. So we never despair of the power of God's grace and mercy to effect a change in us. As with Lazarus, he'll even help us to untie our bonds. But as a practical matter, his grace still requires that we commit to doing our part. We must strive mightily to overcome ingrained habits and patterns that, if not corrected, will lead us to commit the same sins or similar sins again and again. 
That's why, despite the awesome beauty of the sacrament of confession, it's always better not to sin in the first place. As we approach Easter, we are preparing ourselves to celebrate the blessed words of the angel at the tomb. He is risen. Everything we believe as Christians hinges on those three words. He is risen. The triumph of Christ over the grave is what makes the Christian faith not merely an idea or an ideology or a theory or a philosophy or a political movement, but rather a genuine personal relationship with the living God. Christ died for our sins, and he rose from the tomb to show us the eternal life that awaits us. As St. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the grave, your faith is in vain, and you are still stuck in your sins. Yet so too is our faith in vain unless we ourselves rise above our sins. If you haven't already, make a good confession in these final weeks of Lent focusing especially on making that firm purpose of amendment in your life. Come out of your spiritual tomb, ready to meet the risen Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.